Luke chapter 19, let me begin by reading from verse 28. This is what God's word says. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we ask this morning that you would, by your Spirit, enable us to see what is so glorious about Jesus Christ. Help us this morning to hail him as king. May it be that no stones would cry out because our hearts would do that very thing in worship and adoration. In his precious name we pray, amen. This morning we come to what is known as Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which begins the final movement in Luke's gospel. As you know, this entire gospel account has been focused on Jesus's journey toward Jerusalem and everything has been moving toward his arrival into the city. And with Jesus now entering into Jerusalem on this Palm Sunday, this event marks the beginning of his Passion Week, where at the end of this week, he will be delivered over into the hands of wicked men and be crucified on a Roman cross. Now, We make a big deal about Jesus entering to Jerusalem, but this is not the first time Jesus came to Jerusalem. You remember he was brought to the temple when he was just a newborn infant. You saw this in the middle of chapter 2 in Luke's gospel. And again, we saw him as a 12-year-old boy for the Passover feast at the end of chapter 2. And those were the only two times in his childhood when every year, because that's what Jews did. They, They went on a pilgrimage journey to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And even during his public ministry, it wasn't just from his childhood, but even during the years of Jesus' public ministry, he visited Jerusalem several times. Again, because of the Passover feast or the Feast of Booth. We see this all throughout the Gospel of John. Multiple visits to the city. But on this day in Luke chapter 19, Jesus' entrance to Jerusalem was something categorically different. Because here, as Jesus arrives In Jerusalem, he enters the city with the full public self-declaration 
that he is indeed the Christ, the promised Messiah. In fact, I want you to see where we're going for our next few studies. Remember that the Old Testament foretold that the Christ, the Messiah, would occupy three offices, or that he would fulfill three roles. And that, and that is that the Christ would be a prophet, and he would be a priest, and he would be a king. And there are many prophets throughout the Old Testament, but Christ would be the ultimate prophet, as we see in Deuteronomy 18. Same thing, there are many priests, but he would be the, the great priest, the great high priest. Many kings, but he would be the ultimate king of the throne of David. And so what we see beginning with this triumphal entry is first that we see Jesus proclaiming himself as the messianic king. And then next in verse 41 to 44, we see Jesus as the prophet who weeps over Jerusalem. And then from verse 45 onward, we see Jesus as the priest who cleanses his temple. You see, he doesn't hide it anymore that he's the Messiah. And so he begins his self-declaration by showing himself to be the long-awaited king as he rides into the city on a donkey. Now listen, Jesus had spent the last few years traveling all over the land of Israel by foot. And we're talking hundreds of miles journeying here and there. They were a lot more in shape than we are today. And now in verse 29, being at the Mount of Olives, which was just a mile or so away from Jerusalem, it was just the next hill over, it's not that Jesus suddenly got too tired and needed to ride on a donkey for the rest of the way. He could have easily gone on foot just fine. But this riding on a donkey was a deliberate, symbolic message that he was the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you mounted on a donkey. Jesus didn't use any words, but his actions and his gestures preached loud and clear, I am your king. And not only would the people have understood this to be a fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy, but the Jews would have undoubtedly noticed the pattern and connected the dots of when Solomon, David's son, the son of David, was crowned as king back in 1 Kings chapter 1. And remember, he was instructed to mount on King David's mule and ride into the city to the sound of great rejoicing and praises from the people. And so here, by presenting a striking reenactment of 1 Kings chapter 1, Jesus was declaring, I am the promised son of David who has come to establish the throne of God's everlasting kingdom. I am the long-expected king. You see, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem was not just another visit, but it was his royal procession into the city to the sound of the people's praises. You know, this is what ancient kings would do. They'd enter into the city as the conquering king, riding on this majestic white horse as a war hero, proclaiming victory over all his enemies, and all the people would cheer, pay homage to him, and tremble before his might and honor. And that is what Jesus was doing here and that he was entering into Jerusalem as her rightful king, worthy of all homage and praise. But the manner in which Jesus entered into the city was so unlike any kings of earth because Jesus' royal procession was orchestrated with very specific details to show us, yes, he came to conquer as the king of kings, but it was not to conquer over his enemies, 
and vanquish them in judgment. But he had come to conquer over their sin and guilt, that he might save them from his righteous judgment. And so he entered into the city in the same manner in which he entered this world. Humble, lowly. He came not to be served, as all the worldly rulers like to do, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And all of this is meant to give us the constant reassurance. How happy are those who bow the knee to Christ? How good and well it is for us to lay down our crowns before him and crown him as the Lord of all, because that's exactly who he is. You see, before we dive into the great humility that was displayed in Jesus' triumphal entry, we, we must first see the fact that Jesus here, he, evidently, he's not just mere man, another human king, but that he is, in fact, the high king of heaven, the eternal sovereign Lord, truly God in human flesh. Notice how this passage begins in verse 29, as Jesus was on the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, and there, when you enter it, you will find the colt tied. A colt was a baby donkey. It was a colt that uh, no one has ever sat on it yet. Untie that colt and bring it here. Now, first of all, Jesus calls for this donkey, knowing its exact location from afar. And he tells the two disciples that it's right at the entrance of the village. This is the Son of God exercising His omniscience in this moment. It was a supernatural knowledge and divine ordaining. And His sovereign authority was not only in determining the location of this donkey, but in summoning it to Himself. This was not a stray donkey, but it was a donkey that had owners. And yet Jesus summoned it to Himself. Verse 31, If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. And so when they went, they found it just as he had told them. This is prophetic language. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. Like this was not a prearranged transaction where Jesus paid the owners beforehand to rent it by the hour. Because it's not for the case. I mean, Jesus would have just said, Hey, if they ask you, Why are you untying it? And this donkey's not yours. And tell them, oh, no, 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 here, we already paid for it. Here's a receipt. That's not what happened. Instead, they said, the Lord has need of it. And just as Jesus had told them there was a donkey, and just as Jesus had told them, the owners acquiesced before the Lord's command. In the words of John Calvin, this was the power of Christ to bend the hearts of men to compliance. And so, yes, Jesus gets on a little humble donkey, but make no mistake, this is the sovereign God and creator who is riding on the donkey. And did you notice, Jesus gives this curious detail as part of his instruction. He says, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Now, naturally, that's true because it was a colt, it was still a baby. It hadn't yet been trained and uh, prepared to be used for labor. But why was this so important and necessary? Well, because first of all, this means that this donkey had effectively been set apart for sacred use. Because no one had used it. It was a pure, 
holy vessel for a holy purpose. And when we see a similar description of Jesus' burial later in chapter 23, verse 53, and we see it in the other gospel accounts, that his body had been placed in a new tomb in which no one had ever yet been laid. So as to say that the burial of Christ was not just any common, ordinary burial. But here was buried the very flesh of the Son of God who gave himself for sinners. And so in the same way, this new, unused donkey was reserved for sacred use. It was a holy cult to carry a holy king, a king who was so unlike any kings of earth. And it's just like in 1 Samuel chapter 6, if you remember, the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines. But eventually, as it was returned to Israel from the hand of the Philistines, it says that the Ark of the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant, in which God's glory resided physically, it says that the Ark of the Covenant was placed on a new cart upon two cows on which there had never come a yoke. It was never used. Because a holy vessel was necessary to carry the presence of the Holy One, the glory of God that dwelt inside the Ark of the Covenant. And so you see this holy donkey, as it were, was carrying on its back the glory of God that became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. The man riding on this donkey was the Lord of all. And with that, there's something else we need to observe, which is this. That it's nothing short of astonishing that Jesus not only did ride on this young donkey, but that he could ride on this young donkey. You know, we here in the Tri-Valley, we don't really live in this agrarian agricultural society. And so in general, we're not well acquainted with the world of farm animals and such. And so it's difficult for us to appreciate the wonder of what's happening here. Because given that this was a colt, a baby donkey, on which no one had ever sat, it was not yet trained, it means that it's unthinkable that this untrained donkey would let someone sit on it and be perfectly docile and submissive. Ordinarily, a colt that had been untrained would flail about and kick off the rider until it was properly trained. But when Jesus took his seat on the colt, this beast of the field yielded to its maker and true master. In fact, there's an interesting wordplay going on in this passage. Remember, the disciples were instructed to say, the Lord has need of it. And verse 33, when they were untying the colt, it says that the donkey's owners asked, why are you untying it? But literally it says that the donkey's lords asked, why are you untying it? Donkey's masters. Yes, they were the owners. They were the lords of this donkey. But the Lord, the Lord has need of it. Here was the one who was the ultimate owner of all things. The God of Psalm 50 verse 10 who declares, Every beast of the forest is mine. 
Every cattle on a thousand hills is mine. It was the God of Psalm 50, verse 10, who was seated on this donkey. And so when Jesus mounted on this colt, even this beast could recognize that the one seated upon its back was the very God who had commanded the mouth and tongue of Balaam's donkey to open and speak 1,500 years prior. Numbers 22. The one saddled upon its back was the God who had the authority to close the mouth of lions for his prophet Daniel and the Lord who had summoned the great fish to seize the prophet Jonah. And so joining its fellow servants from the animal kingdom, this little donkey on Palm Sunday obeyed the will of its rightful owner and creator. Now, as we marvel at this donkey's submission, we should consider the words of God lamenting in Isaiah 1.3. God says, The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Why is it that all these wild beasts can recognize their king and submit to him? But human beings made in the image of the king, why do we rebel against him and reject his authority when we were created to know him and fellowship with him? This is how wicked sin really is. We may marvel at this donkey's submission But this donkey would marvel at our disobedience against the king of glory. How seditious must we be as sinners to refuse to submit to the one who created us? What kind of stubbornness and and hostile defiance must be in our hearts for us to disobey his authority and commands? Friends, this is how dark the iniquity is that is within the sinful heart. As Jesus said just earlier at the end of the parable of the ten minas in verse 27, that as sinners, we are enemies of his who did not want him to reign over us. Now, we might be taken aback by such strong language, enemies, but the truth is, we are the ones as sinners who have considered ourselves enemies by virtue of our rebellion against him. I mean, this isn't some unfair title that's been conferred upon this world, but sinners by nature are self-proclaimed enemies of God who deserve to be cast out of his kingdom forever. And so God is perfectly just and right to visit this sinful world with judgment and condemnation and to bring the conquest of slaughtering all his wicked enemies as we saw in that parable. But the good news of great joy that was depicted on this day, on Palm Sunday, was that Christ had come not to vanquish his enemies, but he entered into Jerusalem as a humble king, full of grace and mercy for his enemies. Because Jesus rode on a donkey to fulfill Zechariah's prophecy from 500 years before. And in Zechariah 9, 9-10, it says this. It begins like this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, fear not, but rejoice. 
This is a good news. I bring you good news of great joy. Just as it was announced by the angels to the shepherds in the field. Good news for bad people, for sinners. Because why? Behold, your king is coming to you righteous. He is. That in and of itself is not good news. Because we are unrighteous sinners. But righteous and having salvation is he. And he comes to you humble and mounted on a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak, when he comes, he shall speak not war to the nations, but he shall speak peace to the nations. You see, the fulfillment of Zechariah 9 was not just the fact that Jesus rode on a donkey. It wasn't the choice of animal per se, but that he came on a donkey in the manner of lowliness and humility, not in the white horse of judgment and war, but on a donkey that he might bring peace to this rebellious world. And this Prince of Peace would subject himself under the utmost humiliation in order to bring the salvation that was foretold by Zechariah. Now, this thought of him humbling himself and suffering humiliation, this might seem a little bit disjointed at first, because after all, here is the triumphal entry. I mean, if there's any point in Jesus' earthly ministry where it seems like his, his mission and submission into humiliation and suffering has been put on a brief pause, I mean, it's here, isn't it? Because here, Jesus is being lavished with praise. And yes, that's true. He was praised this day. And it is a beautiful sight to behold in its own right. It is precious to see the disciples in verse 35, upon bringing the donkey to Jesus, they apparently couldn't find a saddle to put on the donkey. But in their eyes, Jesus was too exalted to sit on the bare back of this colt. And so they took off their own garments and placed them on its back. And listen, I tell you that, that was a more beautiful saddle in the eyes of God than the finest craftsmanship of, of leather. And in verse 36, we see that as Jesus was riding along the path, they spread their cloaks on the road as a sign of homage and loyalty to their king. And of course, John tells us that they took branches of palm trees as a sign of triumphant celebration, which is why we call it Palm Sunday. And along with all of these visible signs of praise, there was for sure... Uh, even verbal speech of adulation as Jesus drew near to the gates and the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had witnessed, the most recent of which was the raising of Lazarus just a few days before in John chapter 11. And so, yes, Jesus was lavished with praise upon his entry. And it does serve for us as a picture of how worthy Christ is of, of our homage and worship. But notice this. What were the words of praise they were saying? Verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this wasn't just a statement that they thought to make, but this, these are words directly from Psalm 118 which the Jews would regularly sing during the Passover in anticipation of the final peace and triumph that God would bring to them. Now, and Luke doesn't record this, but we know from the other gospel accounts 
the famous words that they would cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means, save us, we pray, save us, we pray. And that's also from Psalm 118, verse 25. And it's verse 26 of Psalm 118 that says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so they were praising him out of Psalm 118 because it's the psalm of ultimate triumph and victory that God would grant through the one who comes in his name. And they were right to recognize that Jesus was the true fulfillment of Psalm 118. But little did they realize that he had come to not only fulfill verse 25 of Psalm 118 and verse 26 of Psalm 118, but also the very next verse, verse 27, which says, Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. In other words, tie up the sacrificial offering with ropes and bring it to the altar of sacrifice. Because only by a sacrificial offering could a sinner approach God in worship and receive his blessing of salvation and victory. That's what Jesus was doing. He was fulfilling all of Psalm 118. He was fulfilling all of the Old Testament, all of Scripture, as he entered into Jerusalem. This was the ultimate purpose of his triumphal entry, not to exalt himself and revel in all the praise, but it was actually to bind himself to the altar of sacrifice. You see, it's no small matter that Jesus now openly declares himself as the Messiah, the king coming to Jerusalem by riding on a donkey when he didn't before. And the timing of this is significant. Because remember, all throughout his public ministry, what did Jesus repeatedly tell his disciples? As they confessed him over and over again that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and all these different occasions, Jesus, strangely, if you recall, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Messiah, the Christ. Now, why would he say that? Doesn't he want people to know? Is it why he, why he came? Well, it's because, as John repeatedly mentions in his gospel, all those times Jesus knew that his hour had not yet come. And he knew that as soon as he openly declares himself as the Christ, it would quickly set things into motion. And the Pharisees, scribes, and chief priests would be incensed and charge him with blasphemy and plot to kill him. Which is exactly what happened, isn't it? I mean, look down just in verse 47, that upon entering to Jerusalem and doing all these things, the chief priests and scribes and other religious leaders were now seeking to destroy him. Before, they just disliked him. They just wanted him to be quiet. But now, they actually wanted to kill him. And Jesus knew And so throughout his ministry prior to this moment, when his hour had not yet come, he told his disciples not to tell anyone. But on this Palm Sunday, on the first day of his Passion Week, he knew that the hour had come. And so he entered into Jerusalem, proclaiming himself through the public symbol of the Messianic King, knowing what would happen and embracing it. And as we see in verse 39, the Pharisees were very upset at the, uh, the whole thing. And they told Jesus, teacher, please rebuke the disciples. Tell them to stop this nonsense of praise. But Jesus would 
Hear, respond. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Suggesting, implying, and declaring, because I am the king. Praise is rightly due unto me. And this began to set them off. So with such actions and words, Jesus, you see what what he was doing? He was willingly putting the target on his back so that they might bind him and drag him to the altar of the cross. You see, Jesus wasn't riding that donkey into Jerusalem with this frivolous grin on his face as though he were some politician who just won an election. No, he rode with a heavy heart, a humble, broken-hearted spirit, which is evident in what happens next as he weeps over the city, knowing that they would reject him as king. He knew that by the end of this very week, the voices of the multitude would not be the words, Hosanna, Hosanna, but it would be crucify him, crucify him. But this was precisely the victory he came to accomplish. To offer himself as the Lamb of God to be slain for sinners. That he came not to obliterate his enemies, but as Colossians 2.14 says, he came to obliterate the record of our debt of sin that condemned us as sinners by being condemned for sinners, taking their place on the cross. And it was by his death on the cross, his seeming defeat, that he triumphed over our sin and accomplished the forgiveness of sins. This is why it is called the triumphal entry. Not because Jesus rode off into the sunset to the tune of all these hosannas, but because Jesus was riding into the slaughterhouse, straight into the hands of those who would bind him to the cross. Palm Sunday was the day that the holy vessel of a young donkey carried the true mercy seat, Jesus Christ, whose own blood was sprinkled for the full atonement for the sins of his people. Church, this is our King, who for our sake humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a holy King, so other, so set apart from the rulers and leaders of this world, who doesn't conquer over people and subjugate them into forced labor for him. But he comes to conquer for people, even rebellious sinners. And he subjugates himself that he might labor for them to bear the burden that they could never bear and to pay the price of sin that they could never pay. And this is why we worship him. You know, I love these words that Jesus says. If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Because what's interesting is that this ended up literally happening. Remember when Jesus was crucified, his very disciples who had praised him and followed him, they were now silent in fear and they denied him. They were nowhere to be found. They were petrified, scared for their lives. But what happened as Jesus was alone? No praises praises sung to him. Everyone's silent. 
even his very own beloved disciples. But what happened as Jesus was there on the cross by himself and he cried out, it is finished and breathed his last and yielded up his spirit. As soon as he bowed his head unto death, it says in Matthew 27, verse 51, that the earth shook and the rocks were split. Though the multitude had gone silent, the rocks cried out, Blessed is the King who has come in the name of the Lord to bring peace in heaven with God. Glory in the highest. And that's why when the Roman centurion witnessed the earthquake, what happened? He, he was filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Because he witnessed the earth testifying to her rightful king. If you're here this morning and you have not yet bowed the knee to King Jesus, you must understand this. He does not beg for your worship and homage. And if you are silent, and if all humanity were to be silent, Every rock and tree and star and molecule will gladly take your place in the eternal choir. Jesus Christ will be worshipped forever, whether or not you choose to, because He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day He will return, not riding on a humble donkey, but as Revelation 19 says, He will come on a majestic white horse with righteousness and judgment and destroy all His enemies who reject Him unto the end. But friend, look at what He has done for sinners like you and me, that you might be saved from His righteous judgment before He should return. Look at the kind of King He is who so loves His enemies that He suffers for them. Can't you see how wonderful it is to surrender to Him? Stop being stubborn. Even the stones cry out in worship of Jesus. Even the donkeys are willing to submit to Christ as Lord. Aren't you of more value than the sparrows and the donkeys and the rocks? Why won't you submit to Him? Confess your sin, confess your rebellion. And trust in what He has done on the cross to forgive sin. And ask Him to forgive you. And come join the procession of the multitude of happy worshipers. And bow your knees to the King. And enter His gracious kingdom by faith. And church, may we be reminded from all this of how worthy Jesus is of all of our worship. For all that He is and all that He has done for us. You know, even these words, that if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Don't we remember the words earlier in the Gospel of Luke, that He is able to raise children of Abraham from these stones. And isn't that what He has done? That by His grace, He has taken our stony hearts and made us into the offspring of Abraham to bring us to join the eternal throng of the multitude of voices crying out in praise to Him. And what Revelation 7-9 shows us is that the heaven 
awaiting our arrival. Heaven is the ultimate triumphal entry. As the Apostle John testifies, Behold, I saw a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with what? With palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Church, may our entire lives be a living sacrifice of worship in anticipation of that coming eternal Palm Sunday of worshiping Him forever. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we thank You for the amazing grace You have shown us in sending to us the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Son of God, the High King of Heaven, who humbled Himself to the lowest point of humiliation and death on a cross, to save us from our rebellion and to bring us into His kingdom of heavenly praise and eternal hymns. Thank You for all that He has done. And Lord, we ask that you would continue to instill in us the heart of praise and adoration and that our hearts might joyfully cry out the words of every psalm to praise him for the king that he is. Oh Lord, would you forgive us for so many ways in which we struggle to submit to his perfect and loving authority but we thank you for the assurance and reminder that he is so worthy of our trust and our happy homage. And we thank you for the sacrament that you have given to us of the Lord's Supper, that as we take the bread and the cup, we not only receive the assurance and the confirmation that our sins have been forgiven, but we proclaim Christ as King. We proclaim Christ crucified when we are not ashamed of the gospel knowing that it is the very power of salvation for everyone who believes. And so, Lord, would you elicit from our hearts praise to our King by this bread and cup. We ask in his name. Amen.